Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. It looked like it might be a relatively quiet week at the Supreme Court. The justices issued orders on Monday from their April 29th conference. They issued an opinion and an important free speech case, Shirtliff versus City of Boston, but not one of the blockbuster cases that we're still waiting for. And so that looked like it might be all of the Supreme Court news for the week. But then on Monday afternoon, the Supreme Court called for additional briefing in Biden versus Texas, which is the challenge to the Biden administration's efforts to unwind the Remain in Mexico policy, a Trump era program that requires asylum seekers to stay in Mexico while they wait for a hearing in US courts. And on Monday night, Politico dropped a bombshell. Josh Gerstein and Alexander Ward reported on a leak of the draft decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, the challenge to Mississippi's ban on abortion starting in the 15th week of pregnancy. The draft by Justice Samuel Alito revealed that a majority of the court appeared to be ready to overrule the court's landmark decisions in Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which established and then reaffirmed the constitutional right to abortion. So joining me to discuss all of this is Katie Barlow, SCOTUS Blog's media editor and the chief legal correspondent for Fox 5 News here in D.C. Katie, thanks for joining us. Amy, if there was ever a week that I wanted to turn the microphone around on you, it is this one. Many questions. Many questions. We've got a lot to cover. So let's talk about the leak because that's what um, is at the top of everyone's list. And to my knowledge, we have never gotten a draft opinion while a case is pending that's been leaked out of the court. I haven't ever seen one. And so let's talk about the substance of what Justice Alito says in the 98-page document, 67 pages with all the footnotes afterward. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it is, again, it was kind of astounding to get this leak of the draft opinion, but the Supreme Court on Tuesday confirmed that the draft is authentic. The Chief Justice John Roberts said, you know, it is a draft. Politico had said it was a draft from February. The court's, you know, it's not the court's final opinion. It doesn't necessarily reflect the views of any particular member of the court at this time because Ward and Gerstein had reported that this was an Alito opinion and that Thomas, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Barrett were all apparently ready to sign on. But yeah, let's start with the substance. And the draft is 67 pages long and it's really quite stark. It doesn't pull any punches in overruling Roe and Casey. It says, in essence, there is no right to an abortion in the Constitution. There's no history of there being a right to to an abortion in early colonial and U.S. history, really right up until the late 20th century when Roe was decided. And then it walks through in a lot of detail exactly why the majority feels it's appropriate to overrule Roe and Casey, notwithstanding what's known as the principle of stare decisis, the idea that a court's decisions should stand and that the justices shouldn't overrule them willy-nilly unless there's a really good reason to do so. And in this case, Alito said 
the principle of stare decisis just doesn't apply. He said the principle is at its weakest when the Supreme Court is interpreting the Constitution because Congress can't come along and overrule the court's decision after that. He said Roe and Casey were egregiously wrong. They you know, were unworkable. Casey wound up establishing, he said, this undue burden test to use to review restrictions on abortion that has caused all kinds of confusion in the courts. He said people have not relied on it. You don't need to sort of plan ahead that you are going to have the, the right to an abortion. And so he said Roe and Casey are overruled. He said it's an important moral question but it's one that should be left to the people and their elected representatives to decide. And so just the substance, before we get into the, the, the idea that the draft was leaked, the substance, it really was a bombshell. I think for people like us who have been following the court for some time and you know, followed the oral argument, listened to the oral argument, read all the coverage of the oral argument, it wasn't entirely surprising that this was what the court did. Right. But, you know, I think there are two things going on. The first is that, you know, obviously not everyone has the, the time and the ability to follow the court as closely as we do. And so it really was, you know, a, a bombshell that even if there were signs pointing in this direction for some time now, there was, at least as of February, a draft opinion circulating in which the court was ready to overrule Rowan Casey. And although Alito portrays it as the idea that it's going to go back to the states, obviously it's going to have really profound repercussions for the state of reproductive rights in the United States. The estimates I've seen is that abortion will no longer be available in a majority of the states, which is a really profound shift. If I could just say one more thing, sort of just to put it, to summarize it, you know, it's one thing I think really to expect something to happen, to believe that it's likely to happen. And it's another thing entirely to actually see it on paper that it's going to happen. We could spend 10 episodes talking about the substance of this opinion, and perhaps one day we will. As the chief said, this is a draft and this is not the final decision of the court. But moving to what the chief said in his statement, that it was an egregious, he called it a betrayal, and he directed the marshal of the court to launch an investigation into the source of the leak. We have seen some leaks out of the Supreme Court over the years, here and there, but never a fully formed draft opinion, certainly in, in any case that I can recall, but in a case as important and as huge as this one. So can we talk about leaks and, and why they are so rare and, and the, the culture of uh, secrecy, confidentiality, at one first street. Sure. I think that the one thing that is really hard to overstate is that the people who know what the outcome of this case or any case is likely to be is incredibly small and incredibly closely held. The justices value being able to exchange ideas freely. There are some cases involving economic issues in which if the outcome were leaked ahead of time, it could move the markets. Um, and so it Good really point. is, yeah, it really is the justices and their clerks uh, and, and maybe a tiny number of additional people in the building who know what the outcome is gonna be 
before the decision is released. And so let's unpack that a little bit. I mean, the justices, you know, obviously they could leak information and, or they could you know, pass on information to a close friend or a close family member who could then leak the information. Um, the clerks, there are roughly 40 of them every year. They are young, normally people a couple of years out of law school, many of whom hope to go on and either work at large firms or work in academia. And the penalty for being caught as a leaker, I mean, you would obviously first, you'd immediately lose your job at the Supreme Court. I think there's been discussion you know, about whether or not you could be disbarred, but it would certainly be incredibly difficult to get a job if you were known as the clerk who leaked, much less the clerk who, who leaked a draft opinion. And you're right. It's a career ender. It's a career ender. I mean, even people who have written, you know, memoirs about their time at the court years after the fact, not a career ender, but it has, has been very poorly received by the some insular members of the court's community. You know, in terms of the, the idea that they leaked an opinion, you know, that you're right that there have been leaks, you know, both before an opinion is released and then you know, sort of post-mortems after the opinion is released. I think one of the most famous examples in recent memory is 2012, when Jan Crawford of CBS reported that the Chief Justice John Roberts had switched positions in the Affordable Care Act case. He joined the liberal members of the court to form a majority to uphold the individual mandate as a tax. Um, leaks before the opinion is released are often efforts to try and sway the vote. And so I, I think we saw one of those actually just in the last week or so with the Wall Street Journal, which had an editorial by the editorial board that looked an awful lot like a leak. Um, you talked about a ferocious lobbying campaign to try to get one or more of the justices who might otherwise be inclined to overrule Rowan Casey to pull back. And people who paid attention to our coverage of the oral arguments in Dobbs, you know, there's no, and, and here, there's no discussion of where the chief justice might be. He had discussed what Mississippi had offered as an alternative argument, which would be to formally, at least, leave Roe and Casey in place, but to nonetheless uphold Mississippi's 15-week ban on the ground that it doesn't impose a substantial burden on a woman's right to obtain an abortion because Mississippi only has one abortion clinic and it only offers abortions up until 16 weeks. So the idea would be that taking away this one week wouldn't be a substantial burden. Nobody else at the oral argument seemed particularly interested in that, but you know, what the Wall Street Journal suggest, seemed to suggest was that maybe Justice Kavanaugh or Justice Barrett might be pulling away from the Alito overrule Roe and Casey position towards this alternative argument advanced by Mississippi and perhaps championed by the chief. And so the, the editorial urged the justices to return the issue to the states to say that this is a profound moral question that should be decided by the people and not by unelected judges. Um, the other like tiny little Easter egg that we saw was at an oral argument in the April session involving whether or not if, if your right 
under Miranda versus Arizona that, that you have a right to remain silent, uh, that everybody knows from TV shows. Whether or not, if that is violated, do you have a right to bring a federal civil rights claim for the violation of that right? And Justice Kagan talked about one of the issues in the case is whether or not Miranda confers a constitutional right, because if it confers a constitutional right, it it might be odd that you can't bring a federal civil rights claim when that's violated. And Justice Kagan talked about Miranda and she talked about Chief Justice William Rehnquist and the journey, she called it, on Miranda. And one of the people who's known to admire Chief Justice William Rehnquist is Justice Brett Kavanaugh, um, talked about the Chief Justice journey and the idea that if the court were to say that Miranda doesn't confer a constitutional right, that would be a real problem for the court's legitimacy. And you had the sense that maybe she wasn't just talking about Miranda um, at this oral argument, that she might be talking about the court's legitimacy more broadly, which would suggest that even as late as a, you know, a week or so, two weeks ago, that perhaps this is still in play and the justices are trying to sway each other at the oral arguments using whatever tools they can. And Politico's reporting indicated that there were, by a person with knowledge, there were five votes for that draft majority opinion as of last week. So perhaps that trends with the theory that maybe there is still some shifting potential going on. Right. I mean, it perhaps was not a coincidence that this opinion was leaked not long after that article in the Wall Street Journal. I mean, it, it's there's, the there's so many there are so many unknowns. You know, people have yes. spent a lot of time on the internet speculating about what the motives might be to leak the opinion. And I think people tend right. to fall into two camps. One is that it was a clerk for one of the liberal justices or someone you know close to them who you know is so deeply upset about the way this is going, that they leaked the opinion, you know, either to try to sway the justices, which seems like perhaps not the most productive way to do it, but just to sway them by showing the outrage that's going to follow when they, if they release an opinion that overrules Rowan Casey. And then the other camp is that this was released by a clerk for a conservative justice who wanted to try and lock in one or more of the conservative justices who might be on the fence. But until we know who it is, obviously there's no way to know what the motives are. But talking about the rarity of leaks, there is a story, I think it's from Ian Samuel who clerked for Justice Scalia that was recirculating on Twitter and elsewhere this week about uh, the late Justice Scalia when he invited his new clerk class into chambers and would say, I have an open door policy. If you need to ask me something, come in and ask me. But if you ever betray the confidences of this office, I will do everything in my power to ruin your career. Um, And that's the sentiment that at least the late Justice Scalia reportedly expressed to his clerks. I would imagine he wouldn't be the only one on the bench, but that's the type of mentality um, that the clerks have in upholding those confidences for the most part. Yes, I think it was, who knows whether it's apocryphal or not, but after the publication of The Brethren in the 1970s, then Chief Justice Warren Berger was said to have instituted, uh, depending on which story you read, either the 22nd or the 32nd rule, which is that if you were a clerk and you were seen talking to a reporter, 
for more you're than out. a very short period of time, you're, you're out of here. All right. So last question on this, again, we could talk all day, but does the fact that the draft was leaked change anything? You talked a bit about, you know, the theories of why one clerk or the other would have released it, um, or, you know, someone else who had knowledge of the opinion, but will the final opinion, do you think be closer to this version because of the leak? You know, that is another one where it is almost impossible to say. I mean, you, you could certainly see Justice Alito saying, you know, I will change in response to my colleagues' suggestions, but I'm not changing anything because of the leak. You know, sort of damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead kind of, kind of attitude. But I guess, I guess we'll find out, you know, we can, we can all run a red line. We will. <laughs> I'm still, I still wonder why Justice Alito is the one uh, writing this opinion, but that is also something perhaps we'll see once we see the final lineup of the vote, if indeed it, it does shake out um, to be similar to what it is now. I mean, actually, I can see a variety of reasons why he might, he's written a lot of major opinions. You know, he's written some of the court's opinions recently overruling other longstanding precedent like the Janus decision on public sector unions. You know, one other possibility, I mean, he is, you know, perhaps not now if his name is attached, like he is arguably the least controversial of the five who we think are currently in the majority, you know, for reasons arising from their confirmation hearings. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Whether or not their seats were regarded as quote unquote, you know, stolen. I think the eyes of, of many people in the American public, um, you know, J- Justice Amy Coney Barrett, I think there was some discussion of the idea that people, that, that she might be assigned to write it because she's a woman. But, you know, maybe that's, you know, A, too obvious, or B, you know, as the court's newest justice with, you know, the idea that she was confirmed shortly before the end of the Trump presidency, maybe that was enough that they, they didn't want her to do it. I mean, who knows? Again, we may never know, or, you know, at least I may not know. My, my children and my grandchildren may, may find out someday when the justices' papers are released, but you have to think that this is going to also, you know, there, there are so many ripple effects and this is such a minor one, all things being relative, that you know, whether or not this will delay the release of some of the justices' papers after they retire you know, to try and keep some of this inside. All right. Well, we have at least a couple of other things to talk about. Um, I wish we could talk about this one all day, but we, we got an opinion, uh, a real one, a final decision from the Supreme Court this week. It was, in fact, unanimous. And it was on the first amendment. It's the Boston flag case. The court unanimously said that the city of Boston violated the constitution when it rejected a request by a Christian group to fly its flag on the flagpole outside city hall. So tell us about that decision. Yeah. So this was a case, the city rejected his application. So the, the petitioner, Harold Shirtliff went to court. He is the director of a group called Camp Constitution. He wanted to be able to fly this Christian flag in front of Boston's City Hall Plaza. The city has three flagpoles and they mostly raise their own flags, the the US flag, the city flag or the state flag, but then they also make the third flagpole available to outside groups for flag raising ceremonies and then to have your, your flag up. 
Um, there was an opinion by Justice Stephen Breyer, so we're not actually going to see that many more of those. We've got the next two months, who also, interestingly, handle one of the last big First Amendment cases, the case of the cussing cheerleader, one of everybody's favorite cases from last term. Uh, it was significantly less controversial than the draft opinion that came out later in the day. Uh, it was joined in, this opinion by Justice Breyer was joined in full by the Chief Justice, and then Sotomayor, Kagan, Kavanaugh, and Barrett also joined in full. Uh, some interesting, some architectural issues. Uh, Justice Breyer, who's an architecture yeah. buff, you know, discussed the architecture of City Hall. Thank <laughs> you, brutalist. Some opinions of Boston's City Hall facade. Yes. So this this was really a, t- a two part inquiry. Step one was was the flagpole and and the flag outside City Hall government speech. Right. And Breyer said, the court said. No, he said the city has allowed all kinds of topic of flags with all kinds of other topics to be raised on the flagpole. So people wouldn't necessarily think that the flags by these outside groups express the city's messages. And even more importantly, he said the city exercised basically no control over what flags flew at City Hall. It had never denied a request before Shirtliff asked to fly the Camp Constitution flag. They didn't have any guidelines at the time about how to make decisions about which flags could fly there. And so if it wasn't government speech and they didn't fly the flag because the flag promoted Christianity, Breyer said, you know, that's a violation of the First Amendment. The opinion did leave open the possibility that Boston could change its program and the city has suggested that it would consider doing that if it lost. So we will see what flags are flying over Boston's city hall in the future. But for now, Camp Constitution. We got a couple of concurrences that wanted to make a point. Justice Kavanaugh wrote separately. Justice Gorsuch wrote separately. Um, The lemon test has gotten a lot of airtime in the last couple of weeks at the court. Can you explain to us what the what the concurrences said and um, why Gorsuch wants to kill the lemon test? Yeah, I mean, you definitely had the sense, again, this was, we may be overreading it because we get so little information out of the court that you, you may sometimes, we may read too much into it. But one of the questions that popped up during our live blog of the opinions on Monday, which I agreed with, is someone reading particularly the separate opinions and said, you know, are these, are these really just about the flags over City Hall or do we think this also tells us something about Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, the case of the praying coach in which the court had heard oral argument and that was where the lemon test also, also arose. So Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh joined the Breyer opinion but just wrote this separate opinion and he said the city only rejected the flag because it was concerned that allowing the flag to fly would violate the establishment clause that the, the city, you know, on the one hand, the court wound up saying that this violated shirtless constitutional rights, but the city was trying to make sure it didn't violate the constitution on the other end by endorsing religion. And Justice Kavanaugh was like, no, 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 no. You only violate the constitution when you treat religious organizations, religious people, religious speech as second class. So he was just kind of making that point. And I feel like we're probably going to see that point again uh, sometime in the next two months. The second opinion that I wanted to talk about was by Justice Gorsuch, who did not join the Breyer opinion, but agreed with the result that Shirtliff had been discriminated against when the city refused to allow them to fly the flag 
So he was urging state and local governments not to use what's known as the Lemon Test. It dates back to the 1971 case, Lemon versus Kurtzman. It's a multi-factor test used to decide whether or not a government practice or a law violates the Constitution when it comes to endorsing religion. And he said the Supreme Court has not relied on this in a long time, and state and local governments shouldn't either. We may see that again. Yes time later this term. Um, all right. So you said this is perhaps one of the last Breyer opinions we'll get. This was the April sitting was Breyer's last sitting. The last time we'll hear him at oral argument. And there was a moment at the end of the final case where the chief justice acknowledged his service on the bench. And it was a rare showing of emotion, at least that the most of us could hear through the audio of the recording. Yeah, I want to say just a couple of things about it before we play it, but I do think it's worth playing in its entirety because it's relatively short. You know, we weren't sure. This was a, the topic of a lot of discussion in the press room ahead of time. Is the chief going to say something? Is he not going to say something? Because you know, making this announcement, paying this tribute in April seems to suggest that the justices aren't planning on being back in the courtroom again. You know, normally the justices hear oral argument through the end of April, but then in non-COVID times, they're back on the bench releasing decisions through the end of June or early July. And so does this announcement by the chief justice suggest that they, they are not planning to come back into the courtroom? Uh, I, I mean, I guess we'll find out. They haven't said anything one way or the other. And, you know, it there are a lot of really important cases, and normally you would expect people to read the opinions, read the summaries of the opinions, and then there to be dissents from the bench. And so it will be highly unusual. And if the court winds up releasing some of these opinions, for example, an opinion that overrules Roe and Casey, um, just With electronically, no but, you know, the press of a button yeah. online. Wouldn't that be something? Let's go ahead and play the excerpt. And, and Katie says, Katie said, you can hear the emotion in the chief's voice. You could also see it in the courtroom. Um, you know, he was not in tears, but you had the sense that, that he was close to tears. The other thing you get, you can't quite tell from the audio when the chief justice is, is poking a little bit of fun at Justice Breyer and you can hear some laughter. That is Justice Breyer laughing. Justice Breyer enjoyed enjoyed the jokes just as much as everyone else did. So here's the Chief Justice John Roberts. In the court, effective when we rise for the summer recess. That means that the oral argument we have just concluded is the last the court will hear with Justice Breyer on the bench. For 28 years, this has been his arena for remarks profound and moving, questions challenging and insightful, and hypotheticals downright silly. <laughs> this sitting alone has brought us radioactive muskrats and John the Tiger Man. Now, at the appropriate time, we will, in accordance with tradition and practice, read and enter into the record an exchange of letters between the court and Justice Breyer marking his retirement. For now, we leave the courtroom with deep appreciation for the privilege of sharing this bench with him. Thank you. All right. 
You also mentioned we heard oral argument for almost two hours in Biden v. Texas over the remain in Mexico policy. But the court after oral argument called for additional briefing. So what does that request mean? What's the additional briefing about? Yeah, so it, it is complicated. The, the provision of law that's at issue is complicated. But the focus of the case, the remain in Mexico case, Biden versus Texas, is the, the Biden administration's efforts when it took office to unwind the remain in Mexico policy, also sometimes called the migrant protection protocols. And this was really one of the signature policies of the Trump administration. Um, but so the question is whether or not the efforts to unwind the remain in Mexico policy violate either federal immigration law or the federal laws governing administrative agencies. So the Biden administration in its opening brief in the Supreme Court had argued in a footnote that a provision in federal immigration law would bar the lower courts from issuing an injunction in this case. And I have to admit, I didn't pay that much attention to it, which was a mistake because the footnotes in the Solicitor General's briefs are often where the bodies are buried, so to speak. There's usually, they're not, they're often not just little footnotes, little addenda, there's, there's often a lot going on. But so some of the justices at the oral argument focused on this question of this provision of federal immigration law and whether the Biden administration should have addressed it more fully. So here's Justice Alito talking to Elizabeth Prelogger, who is the U.S. Solicitor General. Well, let me ask you this, uh, to address this hypothetical. Suppose DHS invoked uh, that authority, the return authority, to promulgate a policy where every alien who arrives on land from a foreign country contiguous to the United States was required to return to Mexico or Canada pending the initiation of a removal proceeding under 1229A. And then suppose DHS also promulgated a policy where neither 1229A removal proceedings nor asylum proceedings could be initiated for any of those aliens until 10 years after their removal. Okay, get the, you get the hypothetical. Would any court besides this court have jurisdiction to hear a challenge seeking to uh, uh, vacate that policy? Well, I think that, of course, there would be jurisdiction in the lower courts with respect to individual non-citizens who are raising that challenge. And that's, I think, the premise of Section F1, that Congress was trying to channel those types of claims into individual proceedings with respect to individual non-citizens. So there would be jurisdiction in that circumstance. But it would have to be done on an individual basis. There could be no, uh, no request under the APA to vacate that uh, order that that policy saying everybody covered has to stay in Mexico for 10 years? Well, obviously, that policy could be challenged in the individual case. Uh, and so I think it could be taken on on its own terms there. Don't you think that that's a I mean, you might be right, but don't you think that's a far reaching argument? Don't you think that goes well beyond anything that would come to our, that we would have thought about in uh, in Garland versus Gonzalez? Don't you think that deserved briefing? And then here's Justice Clarence Thomas asking Judge Stone, who's the Texas Solicitor General, about the argument. And Stone's response, as you'll hear, is that the Biden administration only made the argument in a footnote. I know there's not much briefing, uh, but I would like your reaction to the 1252 uh, F1 problem that we've discussed. 
Certainly, Your Honor, in candor, I can only give general observations because the United States can find that to a footnote, and we viewed it as, as certainly inapplicable. That 1252 F1 specifically prohibits the district court from enjoining the operation or application of, the, of Title IV of the Immigration, Immigration Nationality Act. Our APA challenge is against their rescission of a program that would, in fact, exercise their powers underneath B2C. So we see, in our view, F1 has just simply nothing, no role to play here. Well, um, I don't know whether we can dispose of it that easily. So after the oral argument, we went back to the press room and we were talking a little bit about this this argument. And and I said, you know, it's so complicated and they only made it a footnote. Like, I'm only going to, I'm not going to put it in my story on the argument. I'm only going to address it. I'll deal with it if I have to. Um, And it turns out, you Um, you know, Prelogger had said, if you want additional briefing, we'll do it. And they did, it turns out. Um, so on a couple of different questions, which is you know, whether or not this provision does what the Biden administration says it does, whether or not the Biden administration can still press this argument you know, in a footnote, you know, having not raised, otherwise raised it. And then whether the Supreme Court has the power in light of all of this to hear the merits of the case. So the briefs are due in, uh, they gave them a week basically to do the briefs. Yeah. So it's, it's a busy time at the U.S. and Texas Solicitor General's offices. Yeah, I think it was Sean Murata who tweeted uh, thoughts and prayers to the members of the Texas SG and the U.S. Solicitor General's office who thought maybe things would be quiet for a moment after the April sitting was over something the the Supreme Court press corps is also deeply familiar with. I think we all jinxed it. All right. So let's do a couple of Q and A's because we have a really good hypothetical that I can't wait to hear your answer on. So first, before we get to the fun hypothetical, Robert asks, are draft opinions that are routinely circulated, generally circulated in the page formatting used for final opinions, or are they in the memo or eight and a half by 11 form? Can anything be read into the formatting of the leaked document being in the official formatting required by or used by the court, or do all drafts look like that? So this is a question for which I don't have a particularly satisfying or definitive answer, but we do know from the Chief Justice that this is authentic. It's my understanding that this is how they circulate their drafts. And so I wouldn't read anything into the fact that it's in the official formatting. I think that this is how they circulate them. And so this was the, the draft opinion as it appeared in February. It doesn't necessarily signal that it was close to being ready to release. Obviously, if it was, this is a draft from February and we're now in the beginning of May, even if it was the end of February, there's still quite a bit of time that has elapsed since then. Thank you, Robert, for asking that question. Now on to Leslie. Leslie writes, silly question. I'm retired, but I remember tuning into your website in the early 2000s and hearing background noise, music, question mark, that sounded like a typewriter or a keyboard. This is when your staffers would type oral argument transcripts in real time. I recently heard the typewriter performed and it reminded me of reading your transcripts years ago. Was that a soundtrack you used or people actually transcribing? Thanks so much for all you do. Well, thank you, Leslie, for writing in. And I think what you were likely referring to is sort of a background sound 
on the live blog software that we used to use. And I you know, often type with my sound off, but my understanding was that if you had your sound on, you would hear sort of a keyboard sound when answers popped up on the screen. So I think that's what you're, what you're referring to. Uh, we don't use it anymore. I, I'm not exactly sure whether we switched live blog software or the software changed or both. Um, but, but you are not the only one who has said that they enjoyed it. So that's probably gone long gone, uh, like, uh, clippy on Microsoft word, the little animated paperclip that used to help you with your things is probably uh, an, an older version of the software. All right. Thank you, Leslie, for your question. Finally, fun hypothetical James sends the following. When Justice Breyer announced his retirement, he did so contingent on a replacement being confirmed by the Senate. So when President Biden nominated Judge Jackson, there was no actual vacancy on the court. She'll join after Justice Breyer officially retires. This begs my question, given that Senate Republicans are threatening to possibly hold any future seats hostage, could Biden sidestep this by simply sending another nomination to the Senate for their consent? and hold the commission in pocket until a vacancy arises, assuring the next vacancy would go to his nominee. Thanks so much for engaging with a fun hypothetical. Yes, this has come up. Thank you for the question. And it is my understanding that when there's a nomination, even if it is not necessarily billed as such, that, that the president is nominating someone to fill a particular seat on the court. And so it would not be possible to just say, okay, now we are going to nominate J. Michelle Childs, who was the judge from South Carolina, who was rumored to be on the shortlist and who Lindsey Graham wanted to have been the nominee and confirm her and hold that nomination confirmation in abeyance until someone else retires, whenever that might be. Um, you know, it's one of those things that I'm not sure, like I couldn't point you to the official source that says that, but that is how I understand it. Katie, do you have anything to add? Am I, am I, am I? No, my other question is if, um, uh, another seat were to open up, for example, I mean, by all accounts, all of the justices are perfectly healthy and enjoy their jobs, but you know, if Kagan became, you know, decided she wanted to go do something else with her life. Again, she's perfectly healthy and no indication that she would ever step down. But if she did, could uh, Judge Jackson take that seat instead? That, that is a, a, even closer to the situation with the Chief Justice, John Roberts, who some listeners may but remember. But for a confirmation vote. Right, but there's not a confirmation, yeah. but I don't even think that they'd held a hearing yet. Right, right. So who knows? All right. So looking ahead to May. Yeah. Opinions. 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 What's, what's May going to look opinions. like? So we don't know exactly <laughs> what May is going to look like. COVID has made this a little bit unusual. In non-COVID times, we would likely be able to look at the calendar and say that the justices are going to release opinions, you know, on two Mondays and then the Tuesday after Memorial Day weekend or something like that. You know, occasionally in non-COVID times, the justices might add in an opinion day, but it was kind of 
restricted because in non-COVID times, the justices would all be on the bench to release opinions. And so in part, they had to work around their schedules. These days, when they can just release an opinion with the press of a button, you know, who knows exactly what they're going to do. I think that we could have a better sense. Usually the court updates its calendars on Friday afternoon of whether they're going to be opinion days next week. And if so, what those days might be. But until then, we're just kind of spitballing. But we will be, when, you know, we, you, you usually do know, but usually by the Friday of a given week, whether or not the justices will be releasing opinions the following week. And we will certainly let people know if, if the court's calendar is updated. And we would expect to be live blogging the opinion releases in whatever form they occur, um, whenever they happen. And if you do plan to go to the Supreme Court in response to any of the opinions that come out as a member of the press or as a member of the public, know that you will now be met with a giant unscalable fence that is surrounding the building, um, I suppose, in preparation for May and June and, and what's ahead. But we'll yes. See. And so we have we have an, we have an announcement, um, you know, the if you want your Supreme Court information, you know, obviously we've got the podcast. But you can also get it now in video because Katie Barlow has her own television show. Congratulations. Um, Thank covering you. Thank the you. Supreme Court and other legal issues. Katie, tell us a little bit about it. It is called In the Courts, and we debuted on Sunday, 24 hours before the draft opinion leaked. So a hell of a time to debut a show about the courts. And um, we actually did a special episode on Tuesday about um, the leaked draft and the implications, but it is going to be um, fun and serious, a little bit educational, um, not dissimilar from some of the explainers that I've done on TikTok, answering viewer questions and, and SCOTUS blog reader questions. And, um, you know, we're just going to talk about all of the news that comes not just out of the Supreme Court. Um, not just out of the federal courts, but out of, you know, state courts um, in our local prosecutor's office in the DMV, but also nationally. There's just, I'm putting together the show right now, and there's just so much news it won't even fit in a 30-minute segment. And that's putting aside everything that's happened at the Supreme Court this week. So I, it'll be an experiment for a little while. We'll see what works and what doesn't. We'll play around, answer questions, have some fun, and and be nerdy, which is all of my favorite things to do. Well, congratulations. It's re we're really excited for you. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us and we will see you again. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us and thanks to our production team. Katie Barlow, Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser. <laughs>